0: This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater.
1: Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes.
2: This episode of Futuropolis is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, they'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com future. Last week was the season opener of the NBA. And that's pretty exciting because,
3: well, I guess basketball is exciting. I guess it can be. Not for me, perhaps, as somebody who doesn't watch a lot of sports. But, still. I think we can agree though that
2: the science behind sports is pretty interesting, and... This is true. Yeah. And it got us thinking. What will sports be like in the future?
3: I think maybe we'll have super athletes that will just, like, be so efficient and so accurate that you can tell what's going to happen in the game before it even happens.
2: Well, I don't think we're quite there yet, but we're getting surprisingly closer. And that's what we're talking about on this week's episode of Futuropolis. How science is making sports more futuristic. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Cradwell. If you collected baseball cards growing up, which Brianna did, Yes, I did that. you know that stats have been collected on players for decades. But you might be surprised by how recent sports have actually started using that data in meaningful ways.
4: Well, here's the thing, is that, is that traditionally there really wasn't much, there wasn't a, a data-driven approach to building athletes. Um, even at the highest level of sport.
3: That's Marcus Elliott. He's founder of the Peak Performance Project, or P3. They work with all kinds of athletes from every major sport, including half the teams in the NBA. The goal is to help them reach their maximum potential, with science. So what does that actually mean? Well, Marcus uses a medical analogy to describe it.
4: You, know, you don't walk into your doctor's office and, uh, and have him uh, hand you a prescription without, uh, without doing a workup, without testing you, without putting a a plausible hypothesis around why you feel what you feel and why you do what you do. And that's exactly the model that we've uh, brought to Building Athletes.
5: We
3: need to understand what's going on in the body before we can try to change it. Okay, I guess that
2: makes sense. So that means knowing which muscles are firing faster, where the imbalances are, so one leg maybe being stronger than the other, and how to push yourself without pushing
3: yourself too far. And these are not intuitive things. I mean, sure, there are coaches that can look at someone and say, he's destined for great things in sports. But now in 2015, we've realized it requires crunching a lot of numbers to get there. Here's Marcus again.
4: Amongst laypeople, there's this perception that, that athletes are born, that they're, they're freak athletes, they come out, of the, come out of their mother's womb and they jump 38 inches and, uh, and then they're, they're destined to have NBA careers or they run four 40s and, uh, and so they go play in the NFL. And um, the reality is uh, the athletes, and this is the thing that's been most, most interesting or impressive to me over the last, uh, last decade and a half, um, the reality is that a whole lot of these athletes, in fact, the vast majority of them that have um, significant careers in, in uh, professional sports are very, very good at optimizing um, their, their genetic uh, potential.
2: And a lot of it comes down to the training program. That's where you take people who could potentially be pros and turn them into actual pros. Marcus describes it like this.
4: And so this, uh, this idea that we can, we can take an athlete that has a reasonable amount of potential and we can separate that guy that has a reasonable amount of potential from the guys who also have a reasonable amount of potential or even might have more potential by training them smarter, by anticipating problems that were going to show up and, and avoiding them. Um, that's that's really the new paradigm and that's a real that's an absolute real thing And I, I think it, it's going to change uh, pro sports I think it is changing pro sports right now, but I, I don't think it's we're, we're still at the front edge of the wave. It's going to be a, a big wave over the next decade or so
2: In fact companies are now trying to figure out who has it and who doesn't even earlier If you know what enough NBA players looked like in high school Maybe you can start spotting other new recruits at an earlier age
3: when they still have time to grow and train Ryan Warkins works with the sports science team at a company called Catapult Sports. They outfit athletes with sensors to track performance during games and training. He says someday we could use sensor data to see the future.
4: How
5: we how we can take that information that we've learned from elite athletes and we can take it down to not necessarily the consumer market level, but kind of the sub-elite teams when you're talking about high-level ha- high school athletics um, from that element and really understand of... What our athletes look like when they're 16, 17 years old, and how does that project to what they're going to look like when they're 28 years old.
3: So why does all this really matter? Well, sports aren't exactly child's play, pun intended.
2: And speaking of children, in youth sports, more than a million kids get hurt bad enough to go to the emergency room each year. In fact, one in five kids who goes to the ER is there because of a sports injury. And way back in March 1906, popular science was worried about the dangers players were facing on the field. During the football season, no reader of the Daily Papers can fail to be impressed with the great number of news items, each relating to some fatality or instance of serious injury on the gridiron. One was led to wonder whether any of our pigskin warriors would survive the campaign. And so data isn't just about building athletes. It's also important for keeping them at their best.
3: In the NBA, a recent study followed athletes over the course of 17 years. It found that during that time, 13% of players sprained an ankle and 12% ended up with a knee injury.
2: That same study says that the game itself has changed over time to become a contact sport. And more contact means more injuries, which is where the sensors come in. Here's Ryan again.
5: No, I mean, so the biggest, the biggest impact we're trying to make a catapult is, is, number one, make sure we're keeping athletes on the field or on the court. If you've got two strength and conditioning coaches and you've got 100 people on a college football team, they're not able to watch all 100 athletes at every given second. And so once you you trust the data, you're able to then focus on, say, a rehab athlete that's coming back from an ACL injury and you're looking for asymmetry in his running motion.
3: This sounds a whole lot better than the quote-unquote high-tech approaches to training in the past. Back in
2: December 1948, popular science described a brand new kind of coaching device. Now a sports coach can whisper instructions into a player's ear without interrupting practice. The radio system that makes this possible is shown in use during workouts for the Davis Cup tennis matches. Signals are short-waved from the battery-powered transmitter at right. The receiver, scarcely bigger than a tobacco can, is strapped to the player's waist and wired to a hearing aid phone in his ear. With the broadcasting antenna telescoped, the whole Coachmaster outfit can be carried in a suitcase.
3: Today, the technology that tells us how to train is, thankfully, a little more sophisticated. And that's how we're actually collecting all this data.
2: Yeah, so Catapult Sports uses gyroscopes, magnetometers, GPS, accelerometers. (laughs) Okay, we get
3: the idea. But what do these sensors actually do?
2: Well, things like GPS can show where an athlete is at a particular time. And then those gyroscopes and accelerometers offer more detailed information about how the athlete moves. They take all that data, feed it through algorithms to determine how much stress an athlete is putting on his or her body.
3: So by doing that, they can improve workouts and make sure athletes are always at their best for the big game. Here's Ryan again.
5: We actually know now what 60 percent, what 80 percent, what 100 percent of his peak performance looks like because we're able to measure it.
2: This is all well and good for athletes, but what does this mean for spectators?
3: Well, the technology might eventually trickle down to sensors for weekend warriors and novice sportsmen and women, but it also means that when you go to watch an event, you know the athletes are at their best, which, at least in theory, should lead to a more enjoyable game.
2: A lot of sports aren't just about one player, though. So how do you engineer an entire team to be at its peak? To find out, we talked to Dean Oliver, an expert sports analyst.
3: But first, a quick word from
2: our
1: sponsor.
0: This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater.
1: Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have
3: you listened to it yet?
1: Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, Um, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is.
4: Voices, music, breathing. Or mess for that thing.
1: To sum it up, Extraterrestrials. Subscribe to the message on iTunes.
2: Now back to our conversation with Dean Oliver, Vice President of Data Science at True Media.
0: My name is Dean Oliver. I am a sports analytics expert. Now I've worked for a number of different teams and ESPN doing analytics mostly on basketball, but a lot on football as well.
3: So what kind of a place does statistics have in sports? Uh,
0: the, the place that it all, has always had is as a summary of the game. Uh, you're going back to uh, uh, the, the origins of the game. They track statistics uh, because it was a summary. It may not have been perfectly complete, but it was a summary of of a game that you may have played before and you want to remember it. Now the statistics are getting much more detailed, so that summary itself is much more detailed.
3: So how prevalent is this in basketball now, to be creating these, these teams based on how they interact statistically?
0: <sighs> That's a good question. Uh, the f- teams, of course, are not... Sharing their hand too much in terms of how they're doing what they're doing They clearly are doing player valuation. They're using statistics to value players for their overall contributions Now whether they're incorporating all the the value associated with the interaction with their teammates that I don't know Uh, That is pretty close to the vest Uh, held pretty close to the vest by a lot of these teams so you don't know for sure how much they're doing that. And even if we know, I believe there are several teams doing it, we don't know exactly how they're doing it and whether they're doing it in a proper way. The, the data is only coming together now for uh, how they interact. We know where the players are at every moment in time in a game and where we know where the ball is. So you can get more of those interactions, but interpreting them is actually a challenging business uh, and businesses are being grown around that
3: so is this just behind the scenes do players know when the team is being constructed like this
0: uh for the most part i don't think they do Uh, a lot of times in order to do this kind of work you have to translate it into coach language and the coaches then have to translate it so that the players get it so working with the coaching staff, their job in many ways is to communicate to the players. There are some organizations, Houston comes to mind, where they're a little bit more transparent between those different layers, where the, the coach and the analysts are uh, not side by side, but it's, it's very clear that that communication is going on, whereas in other organizations, the coach really ends up as the firewall, you might say between between the two, allowing some things to go in and, and other things not.
3: And do you think that's making better teams? Is Houston a better team because of it?
0: Without a doubt. Uh, I think there are many examples of successful teams that have used analytics. Last year's Golden State Warriors, for instance, uh, heavy on analytics. The San Antonio Spurs were one of the earliest teams doing some of this, and they've won several titles over this time period. Houston has only gotten better, uh, of course it's only part of a decision. Um, Using numbers, using analysis to make a decision uh, means that it's only part of the decision. There is judgment involved. There is a subjective use with some of the numbers. There are negotiation tactics that have to be made when you're dealing with another team to make a trade or to renegotiate a contract, these kind of things. So the numbers are just part of that, that problem.
3: So, why isn't every team doing this if it seems to be so effective?
0: Well, from the perspective of coaches who've been around a lot and who may have learned from other coaches who were successful doing things their way, their way has been around a long time, also. So, they and there was, there has been some success, but it was probably in an era before people realized some of the value of the the different tactics and some of the players who fit into those tactics very well. So it takes a while. Um, Phil Jackson certainly developed a reputation winning with not necessarily some of the analytical methods. He put players together very well. And as I say, this element of the analytics, how you fit players together, really hasn't, that's a more new aspect of this. So he may have been a genius in doing that and we're only about to figure it out now with analytics.
3: Yeah, it seems like you can kind of watch the players and eyeball it. If you have a feel for it and you're good at it, that could work. In a more consistent fashion going forward, what about having sensors or different types of technology that are gonna improve the kind of stats and the amount of data we can gather from these teams. It's
0: going to happen. There there are some concerns, of course, by the league, uh, the NBA, uh, any the NCAA, and in other sports as well about how much you use some of that technology. The players uh, being tracked at every single moment certainly raises some questions. But it's it's been broached at this point. The player tracking right now is being done by video, but there will be sensors and stuff that you put in to track them in, in greater detail. Uh, at some point, we'll reach some pushback, but it's going to happen. And there's going to be other sensors that aren't necessarily on the players, but also just kind of uh, what else is going on in the game. Um, uh, what, the, what the backboard may be doing, whether it's swaying, for those, these kind of things may come about. You can dream up a lot of different things.
3: So what sort of things are you dreaming up at this point?
0: I am dreaming up really a full model of the game of basketball, from big picture all the way down to the finest details. Now that we're getting data at the finest details, you can dream of the model for how to use those details. It is, it's not simple enough to say you have the data. Uh, We we talk about data-driven decisions, we talk about all sorts of things in this data society, the David-driven society. But in order to use it right, you have to have a model that accounts for that data. You have to have something that really reflects what all that does. Um, And that's what I want. How we know where LeBron James and, and Tristan Thompson moved on this play. How do we turn that into what they should do? If there hasn't been data recording different ways of using them, Can we have a model for what they should do that may make them even better? And that's what I really dream of doing.
3: At what point is there just too much data? Is there such a threshold?
0: Uh, There's a lot lot more granularity to the data than we've ever had the ability to think about before. So we're getting to that. Frankly, there are days where I don't know what to do with this data. I need to improve my model. So we're just getting to that stage right now.
3: What does this mean for the game of basketball at large?
0: That's a good question. Uh, you're really getting at some of the philosophical things here.
3: <laughs> well, it just I makes think... me wonder, Like, at what point is it not just players using their skills to play a game, but it's it's really an orchestrated show on some level?
0: It, uh, it always has been to some degree. I, I mean, there are decisions that get made. Uh, the players are still making the decisions on the court. I don't think anybody imagines, although it's making me imagine right now, putting chips in their head that are telling them <laughs> where to move and everything. I don't think it's going to be become a video game. I think people and their, their fallibilities, they're gonna be out there on the court and they may remember some of what you said to do, but they're still gonna make mistakes and you hope you communicate it in as simple a way that they remember it and can execute it. I don't think that's gonna go away.
2: We'll be right back with more of this conversation after this message from our sponsor.
3: This episode of Futuropolis is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy mobile payments. Maybe you're working on the next Uber, Airbnb, or GitHub. Then why not use the same simple payment solution that helped them become what they are today? Braintree makes mobile payments so fast, easy, and seamless. It's almost magical. Add it to your app with just a few lines of code, and you're instantly ready to accept Apple Pay, Android Pay, PayPal, venmo credit cards even bitcoin and if some other way to pay comes along they'll support that too braintree's fast payouts and continuous support mean you'll always be ready whether you're earning your first dollar or your billionth see fewer abandoned carts and more sales with braintree's best-in-class mobile checkout experience to check it out for yourself visit braintreepayments.com future and now back to the show so if that, if that core of the game is still there, what do you think will change down the road? What's basketball going to look like in 10 or 20 years?
0: Uh, I think it's going to force some rule changes. Uh, I frankly think uh, making projections out 10 to 20 years is difficult because as we push the limits of what the rules of thumb are right now, shooting layups and threes, I think they're going to get so extreme that that the league and and some of the people who have that influence are going to start to push back they're going to try to change the rules and that is what happens when a game stagnates when teams have had enough time to figure out what the optimal ways to to do things are they change the rules so we will see see some rule changes I'm not sure what those are maybe they'll add a four-point line maybe they'll change the paint these kind of things
3: I see how about technologically speaking? What might change with data collection or statistics? Uh,
0: the the data collection is going to be even uh, more robust than it is now. We have right now the locations of the players and the balls and uh, the ball at every moment. Uh, we don't know the spin rate on the ball. We don't know. Actually, the ball trajectory is, is not great once it goes over a certain elevation. We don't know what direction the players are facing. We're going to be getting a lot of that stuff, I'm sure, down the road. We're going to, we're going to have the sensors on the players that show us that. And it may have other information, like where their arms are. I, I have a hard time seeing that in the next 10 years, maybe even in the next 20 years. But beyond that, it's possible. Because right now, it's just a dot. And we don't know which direction the dot is facing. It doesn't even have a dimension. And it doesn't have arm length and those kind of things. I can see that happening in the next 30 years for sure.
3: So that's gonna really change the way the game is played. Do you see changes in the way spectators are gonna be enjoying the sport?
0: I think there are a lot of people envisioning that in general, I, I think the new arenas are getting built with all sorts of ideas for how the game is watched. Uh, and. Not only not only the arena builders, but the, the media companies, they're trying to imagine news ways of watching it. A lot of things involve the second screen, your phone, having your phone there beside you when you're in the arena or when you're watching it on television. to get yourself extra information, maybe another perspective, uh, getting replays, getting odds for what the in, in the age of fantasy sports or gambling. What is, who's going to make the next basket, and projections of this sort of thing, whether there's going to be uh, more fast breaks in the next 10 minutes because of, uh, because of the score and the clock. There's going to be a lot more information that people can have available to them and much more easily.
3: It sounds like a much more high-tech version of my dad listening to the game on the radio and watching on TV.
0: And I don't think that's going away either, though. I think there is, I, I think all we're doing is we're building technology to handle the really high end, but I think the low end is is still gonna be there. For And I, I don't mean low end in any negative way. I, I think a lot of us uh, are busy enough to do things, but we can have the game going on in the background on the radio. I, I think just you're gonna have a broader spectrum of ways to view or interact with a game.
3: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Dean.
0: All right. Thanks, Brianna.
3: If you want
2: more, you can find us at com or on Twitter at Poppsi. Futuropolis is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. We'd like to thank Andy Bowers, Henry Malofsky, and Laura Mayer at Panoply. Thanks also to Matt Giles for his research and interview help on this episode. And thanks to Sophie Bushwick, as always, for being our voice of the archives. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Cradwell. Thanks for listening. See you next time. In the
0: future.